Welcome to Algie's Investment Podcast. And today's episode is a rare opportunity to spend time with the UK's most successful US equity fund manager. My guest today is James Findlay. He was founder and lead fund manager of the Findlay Park American Fund. And over the past 25 years, the fund has generated a return in excess of 1,000%. We're going to delve into his investment philosophy and how he implemented his winning strategy, which James has now seamlessly handed over to Anthony Kingsley and their team to carry on compounding the returns that James initiated for future generations ahead. James, thank you very much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. How did it all start? How did you get into fund management? We started off, um, and my initial career at Foreign Claim was all about value investing. Um, because in those days, you could, in, there were normal economic cycles. Mm-hmm. And we're now in a period where there's so many uncertainties in the world, we're not in normal economic cycles. And we got inflation picking up for the first time in, in most people's careers. Um, but in the, the early stage, it was really, you would find interest rates went up to get inflation under control because it had gone from two to five or something like that. And you knew that that would bring the economy down at some stage. And the market anticipated the economy coming down. So you take um, the furniture stocks. Um, America had a few very good furniture companies. And when people were really gloomy about housing because interest rates had gone up, all the furniture companies would sell at half their book value. People had been destocking; they hadn't really. Um, uh, no one was buying furniture at all. And you knew at some stage in the next couple of years, interest rates would start falling. Everyone wanted to get back into the housing sector, and everyone would restock. So you got double ordering, and the same thing happened in the recreational vehicle business, where you didn't have any competition from abroad, like Winnebago. So there's a certain amount of sectors that you just knew how they worked relative to the economic cycle. And that was just a very successful way of investing if you were willing to take a you know, two-year view or three-year view, whereas the market, mostly at that stage, everyone was looking at the next six and nine months, believe it or not. There was a big inefficiency in, in, the, in the sort of, if you could take a slightly different time frame. So would it be fair to say that you, you're attracted to unglamorous rather than glamorous sectors? I think that's what it said at the beginning of my investment fund. We invested in the less glamorous part of the U.S. stock market. But that evolved over time because you have to evolve with what's happening. And um, you probably remember Kirby Corporation, which moved barges very, very slowly up and down the Mississippi. And actually, uh, we were a little bit early getting into that company, but it built its earnings power right at the bottom of the cycle. And that's another important thing. If you can build your earnings power when your area is out of favor and buy back stock or buy up a major competitor, so you needed to be in the, the company within a sector that was we thought was the best managed company. And in the downturn, they build their earnings power way more than anyone expected. So when it came out of the downturn, it surprised. And you made a lot of money out of it as people got, got surprised. Oh, so you, you just said something really important there, which right. you, you just sort of you just skipped over. Yeah. You like to buy the best company in the sector. Is that what you just said? Yeah. So yes. we went through most of these sort of rather obscure sectors like barges moving up and down the Mississippi yes. um, and uh, worked out, you know, who the smart guys in that sector were, who'd done the best over a period of time. There was another company called Mohawk, um, which we made a lot of money out of. It just made carpet. But there were big, big barriers to entry and there would be a lot of consolidation. And um, um, they, they'd been one of the best performing 
stocks and the whole market. And that sort of, I saw that sort of quite early on when they were already doing well. I worked out why, why is this company so good? And the guy owned 30% of it himself who ran it like a private company. He was, you know, every time there was a downturn, he'd buy back a lot of stock, buy up a couple more competitors, broaden his product line. And, you know, when you're in a bad market, if you're comfort, comfortable that the, the guys that you're investing with are adding a lot of value, um, that's a great comfort. And what I've noticed over the years is there, there, are, there are companies that are, that are run for the shareholders and there are companies that are, that are, that, that, that are run to, to ramp up the, 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 the earnings um, per share of the, yeah. of, of the, of the company. Um, and often those earnings have been quite heavily diluted by options being granted anyway. Yeah. How much importance do you do you put on earnings per share versus maybe the the cash flow generated um, as a as a as, as a multiple to look at? Is the cash flow more important than the earnings? Well, when I wrote that investment philosophy in 1988. Um, it was all about free cash flow and uh, what, what our, Warren Buffett called owner earnings. And so you've got to take into account the working capital, which doesn't get reflected in the EPS. Uh, is the depreciation faster than it's actually depreciating? So you can do it for tax reasons, save you some tax. So we look at all the different aspects of, of um, the P&L and, uh, and, and work out where the free cash flow is. And the free cash flow was really what we focused on right from the start. And uh, no one else was looking at that, amazingly. And uh, not really, no. Now everyone talks about it. Now everyone talks about yeah. it. Yeah. And actually, free cash flow yields are harder to, you know, they, 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 they have been crunched, they've crunched down quite a lot over the last five years, I'd say. Yeah. Um, With zero interest rates, they came down a lot. And um, yeah, I know we, and there was sort of, we make adjustments for um, stock options and, uh, and, and we look at the pension um, of every company we invest in. Most companies are sort of, don't have the defined benefit pension these days. But, you know, we just make sure that there isn't a hole in the pension. So, you know, General Motors at one stage was like a pension fund with a company attached. And uh, you, just, you just don't want to invest in that type of company. And, um, and what about share buybacks? Uh, do, do you like share buybacks? Yeah, no, right from the start, we always liked share buybacks. But, and again, they weren't particularly popular when we wrote that back in 1988. And, um, if you've got the sort of leading company, as we were talking about, in a sector that's buying back a lot of stock at the bottom of the market, or just let's stick to buybacks, um, and a good at allocating capital, and you look at a lot of, there's been a lot of studies done on buybacks, and um, you know it's amazing how many companies do it at the top of the market and stop doing it at the bottom of the market, and so we look very hard at whether they'd added any value by buying back, um, but but we've always had about, you know, about half the companies in the portfolio buying back their own shares. That's another company thing in a downturn, you know, when they're going down and you're seeing that earnings bar going up. That's quite a high percentage, 50%. That was, you know, I'm not sure where it is now, yeah, but, but I touch, but it, 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 it was it, always about that level. It's a good safety net to know that um, the, the management have got the confidence to, to do that. Well, good capital allocators is what we're really, that's what it's all about it's all really about. at the end of the day. Yeah. When it comes to the investment strategy, which you, which you've implemented with the, um, with the help of your team over the years, how do you define a quality, a quality company? Because you talked about value, and over the years, you know, uh, you've had to evolve um, the type of company you've been able to buy because the market's changed. What what does quality mean? 
Anthony distilled the 10 pages of investment philosophy I wrote in 88 down to 29 key points. And every new, com every new company that gets into the um, Finley Park portfolio, they go through. And not every company is going to hit every point as good. But it can very quickly see where the, where the sort of the weak bits are. And then you think, well, it's obvious that's weak because that industry is never going to be strong in that area. But you can't hit all 29 points. But it gives you a very good, and the whole team, a very good picture of where that company comes out. And if you keep doing that over and over again, you keep refining, you know, what are the key things. And I think, you know, Charlie Munger once said, single most important um, thing in analyzing a company is understanding the pricing power. And um, so that, that got, you know, one of the top, top things, but it's like having margins that can move up over time. Are there peak margins? Are there peak earnings? There's like 29 different points there. And I, I had a look through them the other day and I thought they were rather good, Could good you, list. Actually, pricing power is quite a, um, is, is, is a, deserves a bit more explanation. How do you how do you describe pricing power in English? Take, take we own a company called Martin Marietta, which is owned on and off for years, which is a a rock company, and they've consolidated the quarries all around America. Mm. And you can't move rock a long way because the price, the cost of moving it relative to the value of the rock. So it's a localized business, localized monopolies and or oligopolies in some places, and the cost of the rock to the people using the rock is very small relative to the total cost of a building project. So they've got pricing power, and over the years they've been able to put their prices up much faster than inflation um, because it's a small portion of the buyer's total cost. And uh, you could look at some of the great consumer companies like the Gillettes, the Coca-Colas, which I think the situation's changing. But for years, someone like uh, a company like uh, Colgate used to put its pricing up and up and no one's going to stop by their toothpaste because it's gone up four percent and inflation's two and but they get to a certain level where i think gillette had seven blades on its razor and the price of buying razors was like too much of some of an individual's discretionary income and suddenly a do dollar a, a month shave club came along shave, it did didn't it yeah and they undercut them and you could just get it delivered to you and it cost you a dollar a month and uh, Gillette were charging you like $30 a month so you can push it too far and understanding where you are in that in that whole thing and they they Unilever eventually bought um, dollar dollar a month shave club or whatever it was called they had a great advertisement yeah, that's great so I, I, I that's a, a lovely explanation of what pricing power is you, you talked about small mid-cap companies is there a, in your experience um, of managing money, is there a sweet spot um, in the US equity market of where there is a, a, a thick rump of, of, of businesses that are in the right sectors that are um, interesting, um, that have a market capitalization between X and Y? Because there must be a point when they get they get too big and they're too well covered by by analysts and by fund managers and also when they're too small for you not to really want to be involved where is if there is one that sweet spot well just listening to Anthony at the board meetings and reading the newsletter at the moment um which is just my sort of involvement and it's it's um he thinks it's in that sort of three to five billion up to 50 billion area um as you know Research departments at sell side have just been decimated because of various uh, rules that have come in. And so you need to do your own research in-house on these things. 
So although the, you might find a company that's got 20 billion market cap, but no research, every research, every investment house will be researching that company. But, you know, they've been sort of more out of favour, but it's not a sort of general rule that they're all out of favour in that area. You've got to be very picky, find the right ones when they're a little bit out of favour. But that, that's the area that, that he sees the most value at the moment. And and have you as a, as a team always done your own research on companies or have you rely, relied upon broker research? Well, I've, um, I was a bit odd um, in the fact... <laughs> I just never really bothered with broker research and uh, or broker sell, or, or salesman because I was always trying to find something that was could double in three years with no risk. But all the research is about what's going to happen over the next six or nine months, and it just we just were never very compatible. And uh, I sort of nosed around, and you went to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, and you met other people there, and you you just picked up ideas. And uh, if you just kept reading and looking around, there was a lot of really smartly managed companies in the American market which didn't really need equity capital and um but you know but but that's where i sort of find my ideas and the portfolio that i had probably didn't look like many other people's um and you know different people use brokers a bit more out of the team um so it's a bit of a mixture actually but now it's mostly increasingly done in-house and we're sort of wondering whether you know how much brokerage research we need and that's been cut back a lot over the last few years I love there's a big team there. I love that line. Looking to double your money over three years with no risk. I mean, that is the that is that 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 is the Nevada, isn't it? Yeah, but if it doesn't move for six months, it wasn't a problem. That's, yes. But for most people, that is a problem. Mm. Um, so that's how I tried to look at things, and uh, it, it it makes investing a bit more relaxed as well. Um, because time's on, time's on your side. Time time bails you out. Yeah. 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 Um, particularly if you've got smart people running the company because they do things you don't expect that aren't priced in. How How is the US y- unique to the rest of the world from us from an investor's perspective? Well, it's this sort of hard-driving capitalism, really, and there's a very big venture capital community there, which they had a sort of Sputnik moment uh, in America when, when uh, the Russians put the first when the Sputnik went up and they went, my goodness, they're ahead of us. And they said that we would want to be on the moon in 10 years. And all the research that went into that sort of jump-started America to be even further ahead of the rest of the world in technology. And that continued for a long period of time. And then the venture capital business is very good in America at picking up ideas that have been maybe R&D that's done in the government and the Defense Department commercializing it. And there's a sort of system that seems to work pretty well there. And so there's just an amazing amount of new companies that you just never heard of like five years ago. If you look at the UK market, I mean, how, how many mid to largest cap companies are there that just didn't exist like 10 or 20 years ago? I didn't look at the market, but I don't think there are very many. It's, it's, it's not as vibrant. So there's so many new ideas. Um, but in, in the old days, you know, there's a lot of technology companies would come out and they were very, very highly valued because people only cared about the earnings for the next six months or a year, not what their long-term prospects were. And there's a lot of change goes on in technology, so it was a dangerous place to invest, for me anyway. So you always, you, you, you've always avoided the, 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 um, the areas of the market w- where there is a high risk of you being dis- disrupted. disrupted. Yeah. But you were yeah. quite happy with, you made some good money investing in 
what you I seem to used to remember you calling it clunky tech. Um, so bore, boring technologies which enabled people to do business. Yeah, the picks and shovels that go into, mm. um, and I think I was talking about in the last newsletter, the picks and shovels that sell products that go into AI, not trying to make a bet on the artificial intelligence company that's going to dominate the world because it's, it's hard. And um, so the, the, I mean, Texas Instruments and Analog Devices are two companies that make thousands of tiny analog semiconductors, and they've got a huge portfolio of those. And they've got a long life because they're small components that go in and it doesn't make sense for a big company to get into that area. And they've been fantastic investments over the years because semiconductors get used more and more in things, but they're not at the cutting edge. Um, and when I was asking a second ago about the uniqueness of the US market, I, I, I was trying to sort of probe into the US's ability to have m mini cycles you know, it's it's very regional, um, unlike Europe or or, or, or the UK. It, it it must throw up um, different opportunities at different times, in in a way which other markets don't. Yeah, probably not so much now. But I mean, over the years, there's been a few instances when, you know, Texas boom when the oil price went up in the seventies. And it was just like boom town, and the rest of America was really suffering actually. And all the banks went bust, apart from a very boring bank in um, Austin called Cullen Frost. And I, being a natural contrarian, I sort of went down to Texas and spent a couple of weeks there in, in the early 80s. And there were some really good companies. All the local brokers had gone bust. In those days, the local brokers who cover all the local companies, the world's changed a bit. And, um, we made some really good investments in the energy space, that Cullen Frost we bought, which is a really boring bank. And it, it actually wasn't the most exciting investment, but it was the last man standing. And, and uh, it did very well as Texas started recovering. Um, there was a radio broadcasting company down there we made a lot of money out of called Clear Channel Communications, which wasn't so much related to Texas, but no one covered it because it was, it was Texas and no one bothered going down there. So we found a, you know, a really interesting bunch it's a very entrepreneurial state as well so a really interesting bunch of um, companies down there and made a lot of money out of texas um and i remember going to see a, a geothermal plant being built by a company called california energy in california and they were trying to build a second one and i think it was a mojave ground rat was was there were three of them on the site and they said you can't build it and these people were just pulling their hair out saying it's disaster doing any sort of business like that and in California. And uh, I just looked into that and a lot of people were moving out into the Rocky Mountain states. And I spent, you know, two or three years going down all the Rocky Mountain states, finding interesting investments there. So there were opportunities in the past, but that was probably more small, smaller cap. I suppose also, I mean, I mean you, you know, you, you've often referred over the years about the, uh, the fact that cheap labor is, is available else, elsewhere in the world, which, which is, uh, a disbenefit to the U.S., but of course the U.S. has its massive benefit of cheap energy. Yeah, um, yeah. And and that has that played into your hands in the past. Once fracking came in, which was again some R and D done by the government on a long shot that someone picked up and started doing it. America went being from being dependent on the Middle East to being independent. Um, doesn't seem to mean to say they got cheap energy because um, it's a world price really, but. They went from about 5 million barrels of oil 
a day in probably 2005 until 2015, they were up at 12 million barrels a day. So the biggest game increase changer. is yeah. a game changer. Yeah. So a lot of um, chemical companies were in a very good position with cheap feedstocks and particularly gas because they were drilling for oil and the gas was just sort of excess and it was often flared off in those days actually. So it made a big difference to America and uh, we tried to sort of stay on the front foot and understand which company is going to benefit from that. And which were the, which were the, which have been the sectors that have that have been your home, your 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 homelands. Um, I think media, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, I sort of saw what was happening with cable television very early in my career, and America was starting up, and it was all based in Denver with a guy called John Mullane, who was uh, subsequent. There was a book called The Cable Cowboy uh, written, which is actually very good reading about how he built up the cable television business. And in America, there used to be like four broadcast. Um, uh, stations and that was it is it free over, over the air and suddenly cable started up and it cost a lot of money to put it in but as you went along if you were the dominant cable company you could take stakes in some of the new cable channels that were setting up and then advertising sort of moved to those channels from the main channels and John Malone was like a financial engineer and a proper engineer and was very good at not paying tax because he's investing so hard and um he had a company called Liberty Media and it had different spin-offs and different bits of it. And by going and seeing him and listening to him, you sort of saw other opportunities in that sector. And so particularly in the year after we started in 1999, I made an enormous amount of money in the media sector, um, which is very good, you know, when you're starting a, a new fund. And um, so that was, I think, where I made the most money. A lot of it sort of Malone-related, actually. I'm mm. think, thinking about that, reading that book about five years ago. Um, but energy as well um, was another area that was just no one else really looked at. There were, when I started investing in all service companies, when Piper Alpha blew up in the North Sea, um, I was just sort of, there weren't any analysts covering the oil service sector in the mid-80s. Uh, mid uh, mid and uh, so I went around to see the oil, all the oil service companies and you can see they consolidated. It was America, you know, some of them gone bust. They come back with no debt. Um, and there was a lot of opportunities there and not many people looking at it. And did you ever did you ever make an investment that ended up being fraudulent, or did your investment strategy and style keep you away from those? Mostly kept us away, but I, <laughs> I, I remember everyone's got to lose a bit of money in Vancouver once in their life. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went to. I've always been sort of rather intrigued by water, and uh, someone put an old guy in New York put me in touch with a company, and I even forget what it was called now. There was a huge, there was a river that just flowed into the Pacific and uh, from Alberta, uh, north of Vancouver anyway, uh, British Columbia. And um, it just poured in and people were just beginning to get bottled water and it was called glacier water or something. And uh, it was selling, looked quite cheap relative to the money they'd raised and that was sort of, could they execute was the issue. And it was run by a sort of quite a charismatic lady, which is pretty unusual those days for lady to be running a public company and I went over there and saw them and they were having a bit of trouble with the cleansing of the water or something like that and we put a bit of money in because um, we foreign claim we used to have a Pacific fund and I had to run the American side of it and it went in there and um, it just I can't remember what went wrong with it. it didn't work anyway but you know I that was a good lesson you know it was just too much of a startup 
Uh, it's like probably 40 years ago. I can't remember all the details about it. But, but it, that's the one that comes to mind always. Is it, is it ever worth paying a, a premium value, valuation for, for a company? Well, I always used to say I'd never bought a company on 20 times earnings, and now most companies are on 20 times earnings in, in America. Scary, isn't it? Yeah, but it's a different it's a different world. Now, I think because of the uncertainty of the different outcomes we have at the moment, you know, paying up for a really strong franchise, I, I just think is a, is a good idea, actually. One of the smartest guys I've ever met in my life called Charles Fabregant, he was good at allocating capital when interest rates were 6 or 7%. Mm. And I went to see him when interest rates went to zero. And he said, I don't know how to run my business any longer. Because when capital's free and people can just build offshore supply vessels or new tanks, you know, what's my business worth? And I thought quite hard about that for a long period of time. And just going back to the beginning of the question is, you know, value investing is hard when interest rates are zero and, and the capital is just free. Yes. And, and we're in a, we're in a period in the West, particularly where franchises more intangibles. So the old-fashioned value investing I did in the early days is 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 just a lot harder. Even though interest rates are going up, I just think it's it's uh, it's just a lot harder than it was. Def- it definitely is, but I think it's coming back. Um, I wouldn't disagree with that. Let's talk about potential sale considerations. Um, yeah. When is it that a company? just begins to flash amber to 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 think about selling it because you're a very patient investor uh you're quite happy to have that stock in the portfolio for quite a long time but you've always been pretty brutal about selling it uh, when you think the job is done what is it that gives you that nudge to kick it out well first thing I always used to look at was just incremental margins and is that changing? So when, as sales rise from last year to this year, what was incremental margin last year? What's this year? And people don't necessarily look at that, but if that begins to deteriorate a bit, it means that the margins are topping out and generally companies with rising margins go, their share prices go up. But if that begins to change, it's a sort of big warning flash. And, uh, We'd look at a lot of the accounts and just when you go through free cash flow, things sort of pop out um, and you just sort of begin to think this doesn't quite seem as how it was before. Every company's a little bit different. Um, but I think if you just keep your eye on that free cash flow and the incremental margin, um, that's that's what the, the best indicators were over the years. Um, and and any, any other sales signals for... Well, things like when the sector's really in favour and they're raising lots of money. Yes. Um, you know, there's too much capital going into the sector. It was like, right, we're gone. Um, Did you ever watch for insider selling? Yeah, we had a, a service for insider selling at one stage and it wasn't quite as useful as I hoped it might be, actually, <laughs> but we still kept it on and kept an eye on it. Why Why do you think it's important to, um, to monitor the level that the American corporate pension fund investment has in equities. I, I noticed that's like you put you put down in your in your philosophy document. Yeah. I think I just picked it up from Warren Buffett in nineteen eighty eight when I read something he was writing and and he, he sort of said, Well, um we keep an eye on that and when it gets really high, we sort of 
everyone's optimistic and uh, we tend to be sort of, that's one of the indicators we look at when we're sort of deciding whether to allocate more capital or not. And I just thought that probably a very sensible idea. Um, but we know, I'm not sure we ever monitored that closely. Um, fair enough. One of the things you did you 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 did talk about, which, which was assume the credit markets are correct. And in 2008, the credit markets yeah. were telling us that something was wrong. Absolutely, yeah, that's a good point. And uh, um, that they were the they were the sort of canary in the coal mine. Yeah, they definitely. And definitely I could were. see that. And uh, some of the companies we spoke to, like Charles Fabricant at Secor, were just pointing these things out when you went to see them. And these are guys who didn't really speak to people on Wall Street very much. You know, they didn't need to raise capital, but you just picked it up. And uh, and if you've got an investment in the company, you know, one of the rules we sort of had but looked at a lot more was, you know, how the bond's doing. Because um, that can tell you that if the bonds start weakening badly for some reason in the company you're invested in, it's a bit of a red flag. Definitely. Hmm. I'd like to finish off just by asking you for some, for some thoughts or that you may or may not have on how the world may be different for fund managers over the next decade or so. Um, do you think the the environment for fund managers it is going to be more difficult than it has been for, for the last 10 years, or do you think there are going to be more opportunities now we've come to the end of this crazy period of, of a zero interest rate policies from central banks. Yeah. There are a lot of bright people have gone into fund management because it's one of the few areas of the financial sector where people are still making a lot of money or it seems like a nice lifestyle just investing in a few companies. And I say to people, you know, young people coming in, um, you know, don't go into fund management if you just think it's a nice, comfortable area and it's like, seems like an interesting thing to do because there's a lot more competition. Um, things are moving much faster. Um, we've had like 40 years of falling interest rates until very recently. Valuations have been going up. And, you know, when you have to go and tell your clients you've lost a chunk of, a chunk of their money, um, it's hard. It's hard. And if you're really passionate about it, um, Go into it, but don't go into it if you're not really passionate about it because it's going to be really hard to do well because of the competition. When I went into it, as I said earlier, the, the competition wasn't, wasn't that tough. Um, so, and, you know, technology is going to be changing a lot here. Um, it's, I think it's going to be a hard time, but hopefully active managers can do a bit better than they have done in the last few years when it's very unusual for six companies to take advantage of uh, or to do so well over a 10-year time period and for interest rates to be zero so they could get very high valuations. And that was an incredible yeah. statistic when you said six, six companies representing nearly 30% of the The index has never happened before. Yeah, that is huge. But I, I went to China in, slight digress, but in uh, to go to a conference just to sort of see what was happening there about the time I stood down. And uh, there was a guy, I didn't learn that much, but there was a guy on the AI panel and uh, he'd just written a book called AI Superpowers. And um, I sort of listened to him. The book came out about six months later. I got everyone, I, I said, you know, you need to get someone at Finley Park to read this because it's going to change an awful lot and change. And he's been right on the, on, on the ball actually about that. So that's going to change a lot of, you know, how do you invest when things are changing so fast to sort of, the impact of that is really, really hard massive, to tell. And um, 
but you know, you look at other areas like energy, which has been out of favor and no ESG uh, fund can really invest in energy, but I think we've underinvested energy for years. So the value in that space, because we need a transition, we can't just go straight to renewables. So that there are opportunities in areas that people just didn't look at, I think, um, that um, to make a decent amount of money. Well, James, thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for having me along.